1: Libby is off today. Great to have you here with me again. Well, this time yesterday, we had just heard that the QP education workers' strike was being called off after Premier Doug Ford announced he would rescind the controversial Bill 28 in an effort to get back to bargaining. This morning, Premier Ford spoke to reporters for the second straight day to announce that the government negotiators had presented an improved offer to CUPE representatives, particularly for the lower-income workers.
0: And now, the Recovering Politicians panel.
1: Joining us with their comments on this and other political hot topics, former Ontario NDP leader Howard Hampton, former Ontario PC Cabinet Minister Janet Ecker, and former Ontario Liberal MPP Gerard Kennedy. Hello to you all. Hello. Hello. Hi. Gerard filling in for Charles Souza, one of our regulars here on the Recovering Politicians panel, who can't be here for the entire show. But I hope you all don't mind, panelists, if we bring in Charles Souza for just a moment. He can't stay for the whole half hour. But we learned in recent days, Charles has decided to run for the Liberals in the federal by-election of Mississauga Lakeshore December 12th. Charles, congratulations on the decision.
2: Thank you, Jane, and, uh, and thanks to the panel who are there. All of them are, of course, experienced in political life. It's a, you know, it's a big decision for me, but I do, uh, I do look forward uh, to getting back.
1: So highly unlikely that you will be a recovering politician anymore after December twelfth.
2: Not much of a recovery, is it, Jane?
1: <laughs> <laughs> but
2: it, it is inspiring, and there's still That's a lot true. to be done. And I've been encouraged by many to uh, to get back in. I look forward to it. There's a lot of people in the community that I care about. <laughs> Certainly I care about the, about the province. I care about our nation, finding unity. Uh, Janet Ecker, Gerard Kennedy, Howard Hampton, I've worked alongside of them. I've com- I, I actually worked opposite all three of them at one point in time. The thing that I, I enjoy most is the respect and the cordiality, and I think we need more of that in politics, a little bit more positive tone. That's what I hope to bring.
1: Well, Charles, you have always brought that uh, as an Ontario politician. And if you are elected there in Mississauga Lakeshore, I'm sure you will do the same as a federal politician. Before we say goodbye to you, how did you come to this decision? I must admit, I was surprised on the weekend to read the news.
2: It was a a long decision, I have to say. Uh, You know, um, the seat became vacant during the provincial election, so there was a lot of chatter about, who would come in to uh, take over the reins, of, so to speak. And um, I've been enjoying quality of life post-politics and some independence. Uh, but the calling came, and many uh, were were looking at what I may be able to do. I've been reflecting with my family as to what that would mean at this point in my life to go back into politics. And they've all been very encouraging. So um, it, it was one I took lightly. I recognize a Quality of life going to and from Ottawa is certainly different than it is being in the provincial level. Um, but I have a bit more independence. My children are adults now and I, uh, I hope that I can make a difference over the next few, uh, few years before the next general election to try to contribute to our country. So I, um, I was excited about the opportunity and I took it upon myself to give back again.
1: Well, Charles Souza, we wish you all the very best. Um, Howard, Gerard, Janet, anybody like to say anything to Charles?
3: Oh, I, I would just say, you know, these relapses they do happen from time to time. <laughs> That's
4: right. <It's> a relapse.
5: <laughs> yeah, I, I, I wish Charles very good luck. I, a little worried about participating in this panel if it if it leads to bringing people back in. Yeah, I thought recovering <laughs> oh, was away from politics, not back into it. Watch out, the addiction. Have my done. guard up. And Janet? Clearly,
4: clearly, clearly, you flunked the twelve-step process, uh, Charles. <laughs> <laughs> but good, Janet,
2: I do you appreciate your advice post-politics. But yeah, I got caught again.
1: Okay, uh, Charles, and all the best, all the best, and we'll look forward to speaking with you again soon. Thank
2: you, everybody. Enjoy the show. Cheers.
1: <laughs> now back to Howard Hampton Gerard Kennedy and Janet Ecker Howard what do you make of the turn of events at Queens Park Doug Ford rescinding bill 28 the CUPE strike canceled and now an improved offer by the government
3: well first of all I, you know I, I think the Ford government thought that they had public opinion on their side um, and they thought that you know they could take you know sort of the nuclear bomb approach, the bargaining, and it wouldn't, uh, there'd be no backfire. But I, I think the polling indicated that the public was been watching this a bit more than perhaps the government uh, thought, and uh, it was pretty clear that uh, a majority of people in Ontario blame the government, and a, and a minority uh, supported the government, uh, about two to one. The other thing I think which is a factor is this. You, you, can, you can legislate someone back to work, but the Labour Relations Tribunal is a uh, quasi-judicial, independent body. And the question of uh, was there good faith bargaining is not necessarily affected by the legislation. And I, I think what the government risked, and I think they, they started to figure this out over the last few days, was a finding that they had not bargained in good faith that they had simply gone to the nuclear bomb uh, far too early in the process, which would have been further damaging for them. So I, I think that's how we got to where we, we're at. Uh, and I, I, So I suspect that we will actually see some good faith bargaining now. And, and there's a lot of case law as to what good faith bargaining is. You can't just go to the table and say, well, this is it, take it or leave it. You actually have to engage on the issues. And there has to be a record of some attempt to respond on the issues. So this is how bargaining is supposed to work. What we're seeing now is how bargaining is supposed to work and should have worked in the first place. So I'm hopeful I I've, on, all, on all fronts. I'm hopeful that they can arrive at a settlement. I'm hopeful it will be a fair settlement for some of the hardest working people in the education system who have some of the most difficult jobs and who have the lowest pay.
1: And we will talk about these individuals and what would be a fair offer uh, for the government or for QP to settle on. Uh, Gerard Kennedy, what are your thoughts about what's happened over the last 24 hours or so?
5: Well, you know, I think like Janet, I, I've been in uh, Mr. Lecce's shoes in terms of education. But, you know, it, it, you, I was quite concerned. We, I think we've seen, never mind the reasons, but dynamics where the needs of students, the needs of sort of a school morale, which is really, really important. The unit of education is not at Queen's Park. It's at, it's at the school level. uh, was really on the verge of being mightily disrupted. And uh, as, as Howard says, the nuclear bomb is, you know, it, contrasting that with the people who have the least sort of leverage in the system getting affected. I, I think that would have, if it continued, it really would have had an impact on education. Uh, we've got to be talking about the recovery of students from the education available during COVID, never mind what choices were made. There are students that are struggling, and they are the ones that lose out when there's labor disruption. And so I would share, you know, Howard's hope that this is going to be a pretty significant correction. And in this case, it was because public, not just parents and grandparents, but the public generally sort of taking the measure of this relatively newly mandated government and finding it wanting and saying, we expect better. We want you to try harder. And, you know, I think it's a credit to the government that they they got that message quickly enough for, you know, whatever uh, reasons, not probably not the best of days for uh, Mr. Lecce or for for Premier Ford. But uh, I do think that this is much more encouraging for where the focus needs to be, and it can be in the negotiations. What do we do better for students? How does this work out, and how do we align with keeping really valued public workers in in the zone of of being focused on students?
1: Janet, could you have imagined back in your day uh, as education minister uh, implementing a shortcut like Ford and Lecce did over this last week only to renege on the whole thing a couple of days later?
4: Well, I think the sequence of events here is really, really important. And there's no question that being Minister of Education is a very, very uh, challenging role in politics. All three political parties, when, when, when they were in power over the last many years, have all struggled with the culture of union leadership within the education sector. Um, it's very challenging. They're very assertive. Um, you know, I mean, their job is to represent their members. I mean, we all understand that. But as Gerard said so well, um, it's all about students, and when the students are held hostage, um, it's very tough for the government in terms of how they're going to respond. And we've had two years of disruption because of COVID. We've seen that our students are struggling. I mean, there's more mental health issues. Test results, or you know, the EQAO agency is showing that their learning ability has slipped. And Ford had promised uh, in the election that that kids were going to stay in the classroom. And parents said, yes, yay. Right. So the trouble was, is that CUPE went on strike uh, and said they weren't going to back off on strike. So kids were going to get like, you know, and and I agree with Howard and, and, and Gerard that the best situation is when you get a fair uh, agreement at the bargaining table. That's the way it's supposed to work. But CUPE was very aggressive. Uh, I think, frankly, that there were some backroom conversations between some of the other unions and CUPE saying, guys, like, can you kind of chill out because you're putting us all in a situation where our rights are being, you know, legislated away, potentially. Because CUPE came in asking for 11%. Um, Nobody's getting 11% across the country. CUPE has settled in other agreements for much, you know, for like 1%, 2 and 3%. It's way over the average wage increase this year that anybody is getting. They already have, and I get, you know, that there's issues around the, the higher pay and the lower pay in terms of the QP membership there for this particular unit. But um, to come in the door going for 11 and then saying if we don't get that, and that wasn't their only increase, by the way. There's increases in benefits they're asking for as well. Um, I want 11%, and if you don't give it to me, we're actually going to strike, because they'd had the strike vote, they'd given the notice, they were going to be striking on Friday. And the government was sitting there uh, in a situation where, how do we stop this? The kids do not deserve to have any days lost on this. How do we stop this? Mm -hmm. Bring in back to work legislation. But as we've discovered, uh, the McGinty government, you know, had brought in back to work legislation. They got taken to court. The court has created a new right about right to strike, because right to strike is not in the Constitution, and that's an argument you know for another day about whether it should have been or not, not in the Constitution, and their legislation got thrown out, and taxpayers had to pay $100 million in a penalty. So you can see the Ford government sitting there saying, we've promised to keep kids in school, we've got a union making, I would argue, unrealistic demands and actually going to strike, taking, the, taking a, a strike action, shutting down the schools, we have to stop that. The public interest means we have to stop that. So they introduced the legislation back to work. And how do we prevent what happened to Premier McGinty? We do the notwithstanding clause. So it was kind of the irresistible force meeting the immovable object. And um, I, you know, and I think somewhere along the line, I think some wiser heads kind of said to QP, could you please back off here and give the government some room to back off and forward took that opportunity. And I think it was a good thing to do to say, yeah, you guys get you know, back into the classroom or back into the schools,
1: let's all go back to the bargaining table, take a big breath and try to sort this out the way it should be sorted out. Interesting perspective. And by the way, if you want to comment on the whole situation about uh, the ed workers versus the Ontario government, now talking nicely around the bargaining table, numbers to call are 416-360-0740 or 1-866-744-740. Our Recovering Politicians, panel, Janet Ecker there, Gerard Kennedy, Howard Hampton, Jane for Libby. Ford commented today, panelists, that there will be massive impacts from the CUPE deal on other negotiations, specifically mentioning the teachers. So, Howard Hampton, is it possible the lower paid workers could get a significant increase while the higher paid workers won't get as much as a way of setting up other negotiations for lower increases? Absolutely, I mean,
3: even the use of the eleven percent figure is is frankly misleading, because if you're working, if these folks are making thirty nine thousand dollars a year, ten percent of that is three thousand nine hundred dollars a year. Spread that over fifty two weeks, and see what a very small increase that is. But if it works frankly, for the propaganda value or the communications value for the government to, say, 11%.
5: Uh, these
3: folks
4: said, but, deserve but it a, that that it they is deserve a
5: pay
3: said. increase. It, yes. And, and, and they, well, and let's keep in
5: mind, too, guys, that they, they lost a lot. There was a lot of flatlining oh, yeah. that went on under yeah. various governments. They're, and they're so if there's anything Trump we've lo- we've learned under, under COVID is we got to value the people who we haven't been giving as much notice to. They don't fit some of the you know, highly, you know, educated or highly prepared folks, but we got it. We have to value that. And, And again, I want to come back to this idea because Janet, I have to disagree. I mean, ultimately, student needs and teacher and education worker needs have to be aligned. That's the job of the government. The job of the government is not just to sort of come crashing in and say, this is how we're going to deal with stuff and you, you know, better like it. I mean, that's just not the attitude, you know, the stewardship. That's all you get from, I don't know if the education ministry is still on the 22nd floor when, when you and I uh, were yeah, there, yeah. Uh, Janet. But you can't see a schoolyard from there, for crying out loud. Well, let's so go back to... to had non, hang on,
1: guys. You know, hang on, Janet. Gerard, no, let's go it's, back it's, and it's, let it's, Howard it's, finish his it's, thought. It's, let's it's, let it's, Howard it's, finish it's, his it's, thought.
5: Apologies, Howard.
1: I, no, that's fine, uh, because, and I, I do like the discourse and the discussion. Uh, Howard, just finish what you were saying there in terms of uh, $3,900 over the course of a year. I mean, I certainly take your point, and it's important that people know that over the past 10 years that this particular group of workers has barely received any increases, well, let, in fact, let alone inflationary increases. If you
3: factor in inflation, they have they have probably lost about 10%. In other words, they're 10% behind where they would have been, say, 10 years ago. And a 2% increase at this point, which is what the government's offering, in the face of 7% inflation in this year alone, literally you know, puts these folks back even further. And yet they do some of the most difficult and some of the most important work in our schools. If your child suffers from autism, if your child has other behavioral issues, If your child has physical disability issues, um, these are the people who work with your child and they will oftentimes work one on one or one on two with your child to help your child through uh, through the school year and all of the issues and challenges that have to be dealt with.
1: I want to get back to Janet Ecker in just a moment, but Howard, as a follow-up to that thought, uh, so what is the issue here? Because uh, a lot of these workers are making 26 $27 an hour. That is well over minimum wage. It seems to me the issue is around the number of hours that they can clock in a week and during the year.
3: Well, these folks don't get paid during the summer. Right. Okay, so uh, factor, that, factor that issue in. But also you know, factor in the, the, the work just doesn't happen in the classroom. I mean, the folks these folks have to do work before and after school to, to be able to prepare and, and to be able to make the contribution that is demanded of them. And having them in the classroom and having them work with children who have special needs, allows for a classroom where everyone can benefit, where teachers can focus on the rest of the students, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, but I just want to make this comparison. With respect to COVID and, and, and with respect to some of the other things that have happened, government did come forward and, for example, offer personal support workers a, a, a special increase. And they have done the same thing in terms of the health care system recently in terms of those workers who are at the bottom, and who have been facing some of the most difficult challenges. So rather a bifurcation of the bargaining process. And I I think government will be on solid ground to say, look, we had to address the needs and the real issues of these education assistants in the school. But teachers and administrators are in a separate package. Mm -hmm. I, I think the public will probably support them if they say that.
1: I think that that makes sense. Janet, what do you feel is a fair deal? Well, I think that's
4: not for all of us to try and judge. That's what the bargaining process is all about. And there's no question these are very important people uh, in the education system. And that is why they actually are getting paid more than people who do similar jobs outside of the education system. So they're already, um, relatively speaking, at the higher end in terms of compensation. And that doesn't mean they don't deserve a raise. Uh, but the other thing that, that we have to pay attention to is that we're asking uh taxpayers out there to pay for these raises. And I think the premier and many of them don't have the pension benefits, the health benefits. And, you know, Howard's right. They're not getting paid for a full year, but they don't work for a full year. I mean, they're in schools when schools are in. They're not there in the summer. And so, you know, whether restructuring the job some way and, you know, and whatever, and I'm sure there's work they could be doing in the summer. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's lots of different options that, that they may want to be putting on the table here. But I think what, what is really clear is that if QP had not been so um, aggressive and done the strike action, because they were going to strike on Friday, they were very, very clear about, they were taking everybody out on Friday and the, t- the The minister and the premier have been saying for weeks they could not accept any, you know, disruptions, and parents have been saying for two years. They don't want any more disruption for their kids' education. So the government was between a rock and a hard place in terms of what they were going to do. Um, I think they, you know, everybody has taken a deep breath, stepped back as they should, and try and, and come up with a fair deal at the table. But um, you know, and those are those are facts. And I think well, hopefully we will see something that is fair that does support them, uh, that does help them back in the classroom because there's no question they are critical. But the other point that we have to pay attention here, and this is why it's it's not easy to be in government, as, as Howard and, and Gerard know from their own experience. Um, we've got four teacher unions lined up right behind CUPE, and if CUPE were to have been given 11%, you could anticipate that the teacher unions would be looking for something relatively similar. I mean, if someone wanted to say that they were all going to go in and ask for 1% or 2% because they thought that was fair for them, and let's have CUPE get 11%, I don't don't see that scenario happening either. So I think Ford is is uh wise to sort of say whatever happens with CUP is gonna have an influence on uh teachers, it's going to have an influence on nurses, it's gonna have an influence, you know, knock down uh uh impact on a lot of different agreements and there are limits to how much uh you can put and they you know, this government, the previous government, the government before that, education spending has gone up. Um, And you can argue it hasn't been enough, but it has gone up. The number of teachers and assistants being hired has gone up, even when the number of students has not gone up. So, you know, there are resources being put back into the education system and being put into the system, which they should be, because it is one of the most important things that provincial governments do is try to educate our kids well. All right. So, hope.
1: Yeah. No, no. Sorry. Finish your thought. No, no, it's okay. Uh, well, well, we do have some listeners who want to respond to your comments, uh, Janet Ecker, Gerard Kennedy, and Howard Hampton. Ron and Guelph, go ahead. Your thoughts?
2: Wow, Janet Ecker Ecker just took the wind right out of my sails. Every word that she has said so far makes an awful lot of sense. I mean, this has been going on. I've said it before on the radio. And I mean, um, the teachers unions now are salivating at the thought, wow, look at this. What's going on? This is a dog and pony show. It's been going on since the early 90s. It's um, At some point, um, it, it's got to end somewhere because it, 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 it's been going on. With the, the NDP of Bob Ray, Mike Harris, the teachers were on strike in 97. Yeah. For the most part, the liberals under McGinty. And I can remember my own MPP, Liz Sandals. Gave the union, teachers unions, $3.5 million in 2000, January 2017 for their negotiating costs. What was that about? I no. mean, right now the
1: unions. Um, my teacher's unions are ruling the roost. All right, Ron, thank you so much for your response to what our panelists have been saying. So, Gerard, I think, you know, the way Doug Ford is setting it up right now that he is going to give, um, a higher raise to the lower paid workers, but, but that is the message. I'm giving them more because they make less. So, therefore, everybody else don't expect to be lining up for four or five or six percent raises.
5: Well, I think it comes down to fundamental respect. I mean, the idea is suddenly, you know, t- your 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 kids or your grandkids' teachers suddenly become frothing union members. Ooh, I mean, you know, I think this is something. And I, you know, I like when listening to Janet, I was thinking, going back to the old days here, trying to demonize folks is not a good thing. I mean, we've got to start oh, differently.
4: Come on, I didn't demonize anybody. Come on.
5: People. We got shortages of people, and we got them in those low income and higher pressure and that intermittent, that gap that, that has to be dealt with. So does the cost of living difference. The province took over funding and they've got to make up for the fact that, you know, rents are, are, are costing a certain amount in some areas and, and more in others. And, and, you know, that's not a thing you can duck and bob and weave and get around. I okay. think these are living, these are people at least at levels of earning that, that they are at risk. And, but I do think we got to, we got to encourage looking beyond this, um, Yes, there are some nice pub- public sector benefits that are there, but we should want those for other people. And you know where it goes next with the, with the teacher uh, federations and so on. We'll do much better. We were lucky in the years that I was there; we didn't lose a single day. I mean, you have to stay focused on appealing to the professionalism and the sense of togetherness that they have at that school level. And I'm. It's not Pollyanna. It's just like to come in. You know, there is a there is a better path and. For, you know, it had to be forced. But Premier Ford is now on that path. Negotiate in good faith, show some respect, differentiate with some of those needs out there. I don't think anyone's going to begrudge that, but I think the, the fundamentals are it's getting harder for every employer to keep their good people. And you've got to send a signal that people matter. The legislation last week set the opposite. We're just going to shrug you off. And that, that matters. Like, people look, when they do public service... To be respected, because they do a lot of things when no one's looking. They look after those kids. They help them across the street. Yeah. They clean up in that playground. You know, their ECES helping identifying those kids that nobody else noticed had a certain kind of struggle. They're not going to do that unless they feel the system is at least there for them to use. And once every hopefully four years, it is okay to say yes, I'm going to look after my needs and my family's needs. That's not a bad thing. At here it is here characterized like that if that's the tack the government takes they're just going to be on the wrong foot and we'll be right
1: back in this okay quick rebuttal no, we'll start, from, quick mean, rebuttal janet is, ecker quick rebuttal go ahead janet the and then we'll is, get a final comment from howard
4: okay the government is quite recognizing the the benefit issue that gerard just identified i mean for you know what they're trying to do is bring in benefit and and pension perks for a lot of the skilled trade workers who don't have access to that for precisely that reason. So this is not a government that doesn't think that's important. They do. And they're trying to expand that. So I think it's it's uh uh you know much more complex to sort of sit there and say, oh well somehow or other the government doesn't care about that. They do. And so hopefully we'll get a fair agreement at the table and the kids will not have their, their education disrupted. Because at the end of the day, that has to be the bottom line, the
1: rights of the kids to have a good education. Howard Hampton, last thought to you.
3: Well, I'll go back to the beginning. I, I think, you know, why we're here now is because the public didn't buy what the Ford government was saying. The public obviously didn't buy that the Ford government had gone to the table and tried to achieve a fair agreement. And the public said that in the public opinion polling. Uh, and, And so, you know, Janet talks about the government being between a rock and a hard place. They put themselves there by not going to the table and not dealing with the real issues. And the real issues are these. These workers do incredibly valuable work with the children who have the greatest needs in our school. And they have been handed one bad contract, one Negative contract after another for the last 10 years. They've fallen behind by at least 10%. Uh, what they were asking for amounts to literally uh, about $3,900 a year. Now, a lot of the callers keep calling in and saying, oh, the teachers, the teachers. That's a separate round of bargaining a very separate round of bargaining with very different issues.
1: Right. This is just the first chapter uh, in a lengthy story that will be probably taking place over the next weeks and months. Thank you all so much for your time today. Thank
6: you. Take care. Thanks for having me.
1: Howard Hampton, former Ontario NDP leader, former Ontario PC cabinet minister Janet Ecker, and former Ontario Liberal cabinet minister Gerard Kennedy. It is a heated topic, and don't forget Free for All Friday coming up. Uh, when, if you didn't get through today about the te- about the education workers and the Ford government negotiations and all that has gone down, uh, there will be a lot of opportunity to discuss that again, and maybe even sooner than Friday. It is Jane for Libby here. On Zoomer Radio's Fight Back and coming up in the second half hour, a call to strengthen Bill C22 for people considered disabled. If you consider yourself disabled, we want to hear from you as well. 416-360-0740 or 1-866-740-4740.
0: You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio, heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Bag with Libby's Nimer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Jane Brown.
1: Libby is off today. Canada must do right by those with disabilities, the words of David Lepofsky, who chairs the Accessibility for Ontarians with Disabilities Act Alliance. The Trudeau Liberals called it shameful that one million people in this country languish in poverty. They promised to create the Canada Disability Benefit to lift them out of poverty. But it seems there is very little to offer those who are not considered working age between 18 and 16. 65. David joins us now to help us understand what's being offered and why it's not enough. David, let's start with the backstory so we have a full picture of what's developed here.
7: Well, the backstory is that uh, hundreds of thousands, upwards of a million Canadians with disabilities, if not more, live in poverty, according to the federal government's own data. Uh, And uh, that's that's got to change in a society like Canada's. We can do better. Uh, now it's it's great that the federal Liberals um, committed two years ago that to address this, to lift people with disabilities out of poverty, they would create something new—a new, a new part of our social safety net—a Canada Disability Benefit. Um, that's great. The problem is they brought in a bill in a parliament to achieve this, but the bill assures us absolutely nothing. Uh, bill C-22, which is now before parliament, it's before a standing committee. I'll be appearing before that committee next next Monday. It says that the federal government can establish a Canada disability benefit, but it doesn't require it to. It doesn't set a minimum amount that's left to cabinet. It doesn't set a start date, uh, if ever, that's left to cabinet. And uh, it doesn't set eligibility criteria, that's left to cabinet. And the problem with this is that, for one thing, it it doesn't assure that anybody's going to get a dime who needs it. It doesn't assure that this is going to be swift, even though they're in poverty and in desperation now, many of them. Uh, But it also leaves it all to cabinet, who meets in secret, who votes in secret, who doesn't have to publicly justify what they do, and even if the current cabinet uh, wants to do a good thing, another cabinet can come along and, in secret, gut all of this. And and we say that people with disabilities deserve
1: better. Okay, so help us understand the way the process should be happening right now to... uh, to fully optimize the possibility of a benefit for disabled people?
7: Okay, so the first thing is we need the legislation to set out not all the details, but enough of the basics so that this isn't just a blank check to cabinet to do in secret as much or as little, if it wishes, whenever it feels like it. So the only detail that the bill sets, and there's one which the bill is mandatory on, is a bad one. It says that the Canada Disability Benefit will only be available to working-age people with disabilities. Now, the problem is disability poverty does not end at age 65. Mm-hmm. And the government knows that there are people with disabilities living in poverty who are seniors. For example, one-third almost of people with disabilities over the age of 15 are Are seniors. Uh, I happen to be blind, uh, and I can tell you uh, from statistics from CNIB that uh, a majority of people who are blind are over the age of 65. So they would not get a dime out of this, no matter what. Yet again, I'd say they deserve better. So, what we're looking for, there's a unanimous view within the disability community that Parliament should pass this bill quickly. But we, what we're adding, and uh, a number of people with disabilities agree, is before they pass it quickly, they should fix it quickly, fix the bill, put in some of the basic details we need, because that will speed up getting money into the pockets of people with disabilities. And it'll protect us from an arbitrary blank check power to every future cabinet to give as much or as little as they wish.
1: Right. Uh, Certainly take your point about people 65 and older. Not only uh, do they represent a big portion of those who are disabled in Canada, but many of them are still working. So this would be discriminatory based on age, David.
7: Well, absolutely. And the government's answer, as far as I can understand, is heck, when when you hit age 65, there are some new benefits that click in for everybody, like the old age security. And, and that's true. But even with those benefits, we have people with disabilities who are seniors who are living in poverty. And uh, for that reason, a person who gets the Canadian Canada disability benefit when it finally starts being paid, uh, they shouldn't find that they lose out when they hit age 65 and that their income goes down because of the way the government designed them.
1: How likely is, it, uh, is this to happen, uh, what you are proposing and what you are going to advise um, those who are listening? Uh, you said next week, right?
7: Yeah, well, the, the the Standing Committee in Parliament is holding hearings, and a number of organizations have come forward and said, look, please pass this fix, but it needs amendments. Um, and, and some others have just said, please pass it quickly, because they think that's going to get money into people's pockets quicker. The reality is, the more vague and empty the bill, the longer it will take to get money into people's pockets. Right. So, so we're, at, and, and, and I'm optimistic because uh, uh, the parliament in Ottawa, the House of Commons, the, the Trudeau Liberals, uh, are, uh, have a minority government. So, if the opposition parties are persuaded, that people with disabilities deserve better. And if they come forward with um, amendments, they have the majority of seats, they could pass it. For example, the bill says that cabinet may pass regulations to establish this benefit, but it doesn't require cabinet ever to do so. And if cabinet doesn't, there's no Canada disability benefit. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that we and a number of others have said is that um, the bill should set a mandatory deadline for those regulations to be made. Makes because sense. the quicker they're made, the quicker money can start flowing to people languishing in poverty.
1: Okay, I've got a couple more questions here for you. uh, And we're speaking with David Lepofsky, who chairs the Accessibility for Ontarians with Disabilities Act Alliance. Uh, David, what are the Jugmeet Singh New Democrats saying about this? This sounds very much up up the alley of what we would hear Jugmeet Singh advocating for.
7: Well, at this point, all the parties have voted in principle in support of this bill. But the opposition members on the standing committee—that's the the NDP, the Bloc, and uh, the Conservatives—have been asking good questions uh, about the need for more specifics. So we we're we're nonpartisan, and so we're we're advocating to all of them. We'd like the NDP, we'd like the the Conservatives, we like the Bloc, and we'd like the Liberals all to support the agenda of putting. A mandatory minimum amount of this benefit in the bill, putting a start date for money to flow in the bill, putting a deadline for cabinet to make regulations in the bill and getting rid of the age discrimination that would cut out the majority of blind people, for example, and many others, seniors with disabilities from being able to get a dime.
1: Talk to us about this mandatory minimum. What do you see as a reasonable amount?
7: Okay, we are my coalition. We're not the experts uh, in in poverty policy, so we defer to the disability advocates who specialize in the area of poverty advocacy. Uh, and we're just saying, as a matter of principle, if you want the bill to succeed and to hurry up, uh, we've got to get something specific. I should tell you that the government has not. It's the government's been asked the same question. You just asked me, like, how much are you thinking of? Uh, and they still can't answer. This is two years after they committed to a Canada disability benefit. And they have not told the public how much they want that benefit to be. Now, my experience is that before you, if you're inside government, if you're a minister and you go to cabinet to get approval for a commitment, hey, let's offer a new benefit. The first thing everybody around the cabinet table is going to be, is going to say is, how much is it going to be? How much will it cost? And can we afford that in our budget? The government's position publicly is they haven't decided any of that. And I'm mystified, Mm -hmm. uh, because I would imagine those conversations must have gone on before they made a public pledge.
1: And David, before we wrap up here, for those people who are disabled and listening or have a loved one, friend, who is disabled, what kind of action can Canadians take to influence uh, the final decision and get it sped up?
7: You go to our website, because we have a page where we document this and give you action tips. I'm going to say the website and please put it up on your uh, radio station. It's www.academy.org aodaallianceorg slash C twenty two. A O D A Alliance. dot C twenty two And we've got all the addresses to write and what you need to say.
1: Okay, and we do put up our podcasts every day on the Zoomer Radio website under podcasts. So if you wanted to listen to this segment again, um, but I'll, I'll just mention again the website, aodalliance.org slash C22. Thanks for bringing this to our attention on Fight Back, David.
7: Thank you very much. It's aodaalliance.org c slash C-22. Thanks so much for covering
1: this. Okay, thanks, David. David Lepofsky, who chairs the Accessibility for Ontarians with Disabilities Act Alliance has joined us here on Fight Back um, for the last 15 minutes. And, and by the way, I had mentioned this morning on the morning Zoom with Sam and Jane that we would be speaking with a woman whose wheelchair got completely destroyed on an Air Canada flight from Toronto to Tel Aviv. We wanted to speak with her about her experience along the same lines of uh, issues around Uh, Disabled Canadians, but unfortunately, we were unable to reach her. So perhaps for another day. Meantime, here on Fight Back, in the last segment, can you know this is something that touches so many of us, and a new report suggests it is touching more of us more than ever. Cancer continues to be a shared experience for Canadians, and we will discuss that next.
0: You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby's Nimer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Jane Brown.
1: Libby is off today. Cancer continues to be a shared experience for many Canadians. A new report released today by the Canadian Cancer Society shows the number of people living with or having survived cancer in this country continues to grow to over 1.5 million people. Just to put that number in perspective, 10 years Years ago. The number was estimated to be 1 million. Authors of the report say the higher number is caused by both increased survival and incidence, making it both a reason for optimism and concern. Kelly Wilson-Cull is the Director of Advocacy at the Canadian Cancer Society and she joins us now on Fight Back. Hi Kelly. Hi there. Talk to us about this combination of optimism and concern based on the findings of this report.
8: Sure. Um, so this report, as you said, really details cancer prevalence, and it really relates back to um, what impact cancer has on Canadian society as a whole, um, because it really looks at that population base that are um, you know living with cancer right now or, or have been diagnosed with it in the past, and so. As you said, there's kind of a, you know, a two sides to this coin. Uh, one is more concerning because of course cancer incidence, that means the sheer number of people who are being diagnosed with cancer is growing. Um, uh, and that's really due to two reasons. One is that we have an aging population and cancer is primarily, though of course not exclusively, um, a disease of a, an older age demographic. And we also have a growing population in Canada. The flip side of that, the more optimistic side, is around the fact that there have been tremendous improvements in terms of survival rates for people living with cancer. And so more Canadians are expected to survive their their cancer diagnosis, um, and that contributes to an increase in long-term prevalence. Today in Canada... 64% of people survive five years past um, their diagnosis of cancer. And that's a a significant increase um, from,
1: you know, decades ago. Absolutely. So of those 1.5 million people who are either undergoing cancer treatment or have survived cancer, have you broken down what percentage uh, of of the 1.5 million are right now dealing with cancer versus those who have survived? So I could tell you a
8: couple of things. Um we have uh, we know that two in five Canadians will be impacted by cancer in their lifetime. So I think that for for most Canadians um you would agree with the statement that um that everybody is impacted by cancer whether it's directly or indirectly. Um in the context of this report, we know that just this year alone, um 200, 234,000 Canadians will be diagnosed with cancer. Um, and so that really will, of course, add to the cancer prevalence that we've talked about, that 1.5 million, um, people who are living with cancer. And it really, uh, drives a call to action around, um, what, what, what do we need, um, to put in place in terms of compassionate support, um, for those 1.5 million Canadians? And, and then how do we, um, with a more longer-facing view, look at, Needs around prevention and screening, diagnostics, diagnostic treatment, and and end of life care, and to support those people who may not currently be in the cancer journey, but but may be in the years to come.
6: Mm-hmm.
1: I'm speaking with Kelly Wilson cull of the Canadian Cancer Society, and you know that is really um, an interesting stat to think about: 1.5 million people in Canada either have cancer or have had cancer. And certainly if you are a cancer survivor and would like to share your story with us, it adds to uh, the good news of this report that there are more people surviving cancer. Kelly just mentioned 64% our survivors beyond five years. So we really have come a long way in fighting cancer as a nation, as a society. Numbers to call are 416-360-0740 or one 866 740 Kelly, let's break it down a little bit more. Um, so incidence is up, survival is up, but what about the cancer death rate?
8: Sure. Um, so we know that, of course, that there is um, there are a lot of people. You know, the significant population that does not survive cancer, um, and we know that there's a lot of work to do in terms of particular types of cancer. Um, in in the context of prevalence, uh, we know that the vast majority, over fifty percent, of people of, of prevalent cancers relate back to breast, prostate, and colorectal cancer. Um, one, one type of cancer that's not included in that list would be lung cancer. Um, that's uh, an example of a type of cancer that has a high, high incidence rate, um, in Canada among both men and women. Um, but unfortunately a very low survival rate. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the prevalence of lung cancer is not high in terms of how it exists in our, um, in our society today. Um, So there's certainly a lot of work to do around um, improving survival rates of of particular types of cancers. Um, Lung cancer would be a, a good example of that um so that fewer people are are succumbing to cancer and we're seeing
1: term. we're seeing it across the board uh, i didn't mention to you yet that i am an advocate for bladder cancer canada have been since 2015 in memory of my mom and hmm. uh, since the awareness has risen so much in recent years the survival rate has also gone up for people because it's all about that early detection right and and bladder cancer very much um a product of that
8: Exactly. Yes. Um. Or, you know, awareness and education is so important, and that's a huge part of our mandate at the Canadian Cancer Society. Is, um. You know, really helping helping people to live healthy lifestyles, support healthy policies, um, and then where possible, um, engage and participate in those in those screening programs. Um, for particular types of cancers. Unfortunately, we don't have screening programs for all different types right. of cancers, but that that awareness and education is so critical.
1: Yeah, well, t- talk to us about how important that is, uh, the screening programs that are available to us and what kinds of cancers um, we can detect early if we get screened early enough.
8: Mm-hmm. Yeah, cancer screening is a really critical part of, of our conversation. And, and just relating back to prevalence in this report, um you know cancer screening is one of those things that that was significantly impacted particularly during the pandemic most provinces across canada saw um you know at least a, at the very least a pause um in their um in access to screening programs and we know that for for those organized screening programs across canada um and it's, it's pretty consistent uh, but but there are variations province to province we have organized screening programs for breast um cervical and um colorectal cancers there's different criteria and access points for those population based screening programs, but these are important places for Canadians to um, engage um, when, when these programs become available to them, because of course they help detect cancer at an early and most treatable stage. Um, you know, but we, we also know, um, that, that the pandemic impacted cancer screening yeah. programs and, um, and there's still work to do in terms of those catch up to those programs. And so really drawing back to cancer prevalence, we know that 1.5 million Canadians are living with cancer today um, but this really doesn't include the impact of the pandemic. Um, we won't know that for a couple of more years and so as we think about what that health system planning looks like, what the needs are um, of our of health human resources, of hospital capacity, um, of prevention and screening programs, it's really so critical um, to think about how we um, prevent cancer before it starts how we catch cancer at a more treatable stage and set up programs and systems to support Canadians who are living with cancer.
1: okay let's go to the phones uh, Joan in Oshawa thanks for calling in uh, what is your cancer experience?
6: Well I've had cancer three times and uh, and it's it- it's been uh, it's been quite a road I had cervical yeah. cancer uh, I had uh, cancer, um, for the, um, what do you call it? But
1: three different types cancer of cancer and I had, skin cancer. Uh, yeah. um, what the heck was the other one? You have been through a lot, haven't you, Joan? How, how long have you, uh, been cancer-free?
6: Oh, gee, about, um, 20 years. Oh, congratulations. Wow. That's incredible. You yeah, are- uh, it's uh, it's been um, quite a road I never lost um, never lost hope um, and I I say to other other people that are going through uh, cancer I also have skin cancer <laughs> so you know for other people that are going through it to uh, keep keep their hope and and uh, uh, just keep looking up and it's it, it's not all doom and gloom like a lot of people, you know, say it is. Um, I went through it; it wasn't a breeze, but mm-hmm. I went through it, and I've come come out stronger. Did what you had than, to do uh, Than yeah. before, Joan. Um, thank you very much. I don't I don't mean that so. I had was yeah. um, on my face was on my at my nose and uh, mm-hmm. on the side of my nose, yeah. and uh, I had that removed, and uh, they took skin from behind my
1: ear. Joan, you have been, have been through a lot. Joan, I thank you so much for calling in. I hate to cut you off, but we are approaching 1 o'clock, and uh, there are other people who want to get through. Um, you know, cancer touches us all. Kelly, uh, do you have any final comments? As, uh, you know, I mean, there there's more good news than bad, I suppose.
8: Well, you know, one of the aspects of this report, like Joan says, is that there are so many people who are surviving more longer term um, with a cancer diagnosis. And in in fact, um, in terms of the people who are living with a prevalent cancer, we know that 60% of that population has survived between 5 and 25 years. So it again really points to that long-term survival. And it causes us to think about what supports do we need to ensure that cancer survivors have in place to support their recovery and, and life after cancer.
1: Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Kelly Wilson-Call is the Director of Advocacy at the Canadian Cancer Society. I really wish we could have talked longer on that topic, and uh, sorry for not getting to your calls. It has been a busy fight back. We've got the number ones at one coming up after Bob Comsick and the news here at one o'clock.
0: You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio.